Race matters. 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 Hey guys, so my name is Sarah Khan. I'm a Walwan and Gamilaroi woman. I'm also Pakistani as well. Before we begin, I want to acknowledge the lands that we're gathering on today, and they are the lands of the Gadigal people. Gadigal people have been here for 80,000 years before us, and they'll be here after us as well. This land was never ceded, and the Gadigal people were the first point of invasion as well. They've gone through a tremendous amount of trauma and loss, but they're extremely resilient, and they're still here today. And it's very important to remember that in big structures like this, big colonial structures like this as well. And wherever you go, no matter how many buildings you see, no matter how much bush you see, it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land and the Gadigal people are still very much here today. So I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to their elders, both past, present and any emerging elders that we have here in the room with us today. So this is a very new thing that we've done for Race Matters. If you don't follow Race Matters, it's a uh, podcast recording that we do out of FBI radio. It's a very important thing that we have created. It's something that's been very much missing for a lot of First Nations and people of colour. And that's a stage and a setting and a platform where our voices can be completely heard and completely uncensored while also being navigated and facilitated by other people of colour and First Nations people. And with NAIDOC Week's theme this year, Voice Treaty Truth, it's really speaks a lot to what we kind of do with Race Matters, which is the voice and the truth aspect of it. And so what we're going to be covering a lot tonight is um, how our voices as First Nations people have been belittled, gaslighted, how we have to fight for our voices and how we have to fight for a space and a structure and people around us and safe people around us to be able to confidently speak our truth without it being manipulated to tell a false narrative about us. And I really want to make something very, very clear before we start off. There's a reason why we don't do Q&As at the end and that's because this space is not for anyone, I'm sorry, it's not for anyone that is not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. This is our space. We've had to fight very, very hard to have a platform like this. The only reason why I can be up here right now speaking is because of the incredibly strong black women and men that came before me at this place at the Australian Museum and them themselves worked in unsafe spaces so that I could be here right now doing this. And so that's why we won't do a Q&A. If what we say strikes a chord with you, you feel kind of personally attacked in a way, then maybe this isn't the yarn for you. Maybe this isn't the space for you. And that's something that you'll probably have to go off and reflect on your own. That's not something that needs to be... Don't engage us on that. Don't engage us on why you're feeling personally attacked or whatever, or you're feeling a certain type of way about something we said. Because we've had to fight very hard to even just have an unlimited, uncensored truth. So if you're feeling a certain type of way about what we say, then that's something you're going to have to go and think about and reflect on separately, don't come and try and engage us afterwards. Or try and say there's something that we said that you didn't, you know, particularly agree with because we're not having these yarns for you, we're having these yarns for us. And for the next generation of First Nations mob that are coming through that need us to have these voices in this space right now and to set a kind of standard. So, before we begin now, we have two, I'm very, very privileged to have 
these two women here with me. They are both powerhouses in their own right and going off and venturing and creating businesses of their own and taking a really big leap of faith in themselves in order to do that. And they don't just do it for themselves, they do it for all of our communities. They are really a strong representation, in my opinion, of the backbone of strong black women. And I feel very privileged to know them and for them to agree to come here and share the space with me. So we have Barbie Lee Kirby. She is a Niampo Wailwan Barkinji and Barkinji, Uralari, Niampa, and Wailwan woman. Yep, got them all. Sick. <laughs> got them all, <laughs> woman. And then we have here as well Dixie Crawford. She's also a Barkinji woman. So we've got Central West New South Wales represented really strongly tonight. So please welcome them onto the stage with me. We didn't have two mics last time when we did this. <laughs> this is Flash, treating us well here. <laughs> so, we're going to start off with voice. So, I'll turn to you, sis, Dixie. What were or who were the majority voices that you heard growing up and how did they impact you? Um, hello, everyone. I don't intend on personally attacking anyone, so <laughs> you don't need to fight tonight, it's all right. Um, so, I'm a, I'm a Barkajuan from, we come from the same little town in the middle of nowhere, but probably one of the most beautiful places in the entire world, Brewarina. And um, it's funny that, like, there's probably like a thousand, maybe 1,100 people in our town. Um, and it's, it's funny that we're both here at exactly the same time having this conversation. It's also funny because Barbie could have been my sister-in-law, but, you know, <laughs> never worked out. Um, <laughs> mind you, like, honestly, like, I had a terrible crush on Barbie's brother when I was eight. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> um, I actually cut out his photo in the school photo and I put it in my bag and then they found it and then that's when he knew that I loved him and then that never happened again. Um, <laughs> did he ever tell you that story? No, well, there you go. <laughs> um, see, I was hitting, you know, single white female at, you know, eight. Um, you would so, have been a beautiful sister-in-law. Thank you. Um, still time. Um... <laughs> So, mind you, i got a boyfriend at home. Okay, let me answer the question. Um, <laughs> okay, so people who have influenced my life has been um, my grandmother and also my mum. My grandmother's name was Evelyn Crawford and she was a Barkindji woman from the Darling River people up in, um, or a bit further west, um, Wilkenya. People familiar with Wilkenya? Um, yeah, so that's where, I, that's where my... Our bloodline comes from. Um, and then my nan raised all of her... Um, all of my aunties and uncles and my mum in Brewarina on the banks of the Barwon. Um, so I guess her voice consistently um, plays a big role in my life now. She passed away in 2001 and from a very early age she taught me about the importance of education. A lot of our family, um, most of my family are people that worked in education, TAFE, um, at the Central School in Brewarina. Always talked about ed education, how valuable it was for us to take our position in, in this country as Aboriginal people to the next level. Um, she always taught me to be, um, to make really smart, conscious decisions about what it is that you want to do in your life and why it is that you want to do it and never to lose focus of that. I remember lots of conversations about the North Star and I guess in, you know, now looking back on that, I truly understand what that meant as in knowing where it is that you want to go and being unshakable in the truth that you want to sit in and how it is that you want to get to that space. Um, and my, my mother 
very similar messages, so I kind of got it from every single angle in my life. Yeah. What about you, sis? What voices did you hear growing up and how do they impact you? Uh, well, one of those voices was um, Annie Evelyn Crawford. I mean, I was only a little girl when, when she passed away, but she was quite a remarkable, um, staunch, real staunch woman. And, and she was a big advocate for Indigenous people um, within, a, you know, within the education field. And um, she was quite a, a um, strong force um, when it came to black women and strong black women in Brewarana. Um, and you're right, um, my, my parents often sit around and, you know, we've grown up around um, our old people coming in and out. And every time one of our uncles or aunties, like even our aunties from, um, she lived from um, Mildura, they're Barkindji mob, but they're from North Kenya, right up to, um, right through Bow Reynolds. Um, and every time they'd come, my parents would be so excited to see them pull up at the front and it's because we get to sit around and we get to hear them talk and we get to hear them talk about the old times but also the present times and, you know, and you know what's interesting is I've never seen one of them get angry. They would talk about um, different things that were happening, in, happening at the time when it comes to, you know, the political movement for our people and... and but not once did I ever see them get, get angry. Um, but I've also heard mum and dad have conversations about different families that grew up around um, Inbury, Warrener, who come off the mission and settled on the banks of the Barwon, whether it be on the west side of Brewarana where my parents grew up, um, or around Barwon 4, which was then known as Billy Goat Bend, but now Barwon 4. And that's where Dixie's people grew up and where Aunty Evelyn Crawford raised uh, many, many children. They got a big mob out there. Um, and, and I guess, I mean, although I was such a young girl when Aunty Evelyn passed and many other staunch blackfellas out there, you know, um, Bush Queen, Aunty Essie Coffey, and then you had Uncle Ted Simpson, you had Uncle Tombo Winters, um, all these really powerful black people, um, but they, they lived on because our, our parents spoke about them. And, um, you know, my grandmother speaks highly of them. Um, and that's how I know about Dixie's family um, around, around Barwon 4. I think that speaks a lot as well because you both explained um, pretty strongly the, the kinship systems that we have as blackfellas and how if we don't have those kinships, why it's so important for us to stay with our families and for us to stay with each other because if we don't have those kinship systems around us, we don't have those old people around us sharing those stories, especially about what happened in their times as well, it's very hard for us to find um, anything about what had happened back then to them, though their survival times back then. And so it's really important for us to really be surrounded by their voices because without that, it's quite empty in a way. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, 100%. Um, and in regards to that, I mean, we talk about the voices that we have today, that we try to have today, and how, which is interesting, because you know, we have social media now, we have the internet, 
you know, we have ways, we, have, we can have our own podcast now, we can have our own YouTube channels now. I mean, there's all various ways to have a voice, uh, but still we keep being shut down and shut out in also very various ways. Um, but it brings me back to our old people back, back home, um, who have now, a lot of them who have passed. Um, you know, they, they come from very humble beginnings, very, um, very hard times and, and you know, this is, you know, when, when they've been brought, that's why, that's why you see a lot of people come from Brewarrina because Brewarrina was one of the largest missions in New South Wales. It was the first mission, the first official mission in New South Wales and it was one of the largest. It was the largest. Well, I thought it is. So a lot of families, a lot of Barkindji people, a lot of Yurralara people, Whalewin people. Um, you got people, you know, the Yorta Yorta people got brought down. You got a lot of Wiradjuri people that ended up on um, the river on the mission, a lot of Gamilarai people. Um, and when, um, when the, um, the likes of William Ferguson and William Cooper and... Um, various other activists at the time during the 1930s, and 1930s by the way, I mean, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X just literally probably just started to walk. And we're talking about these incredible activists in a time where, you know, Indigenous people were still on, on missions, which is absolutely incredible. And they had, um, you know, just these strong voices. And they organised at the time during the 1930s a walk-off I mean, how do you organise something across New South Wales with no internet, no social media? You know, like, but that's how strong their voices were. Which I think, when I think about it now, that's, how incredible is that? You know, and then that, that led to, they walked off, so you've got to think of the mission. Um, they, you know, it weren't the best living. Um, it wasn't ideal, you know, living space. Um, but you had houses there, you, you weren't allowed to practice culture. Um, the, and we can go on and on about how our people were treated. But you gotta remember, well, they walked off in protest. My, grand, my great-grandfather, Jack Simpson, he walked off in protest. He was a whale well, man. Um, <laughs> he walked off in protest um, with his family, with my grandmother. Um, and he settled on the banks of the bar and along with many other Aboriginal families and they built, they lived in tin huts. My mother was brought up in a tin hut, you know, and um, dirt floors. And, you know, it, it is a good, it's a testament to the strong voices that they had at the time and the will to, to, to have empowerment and self-determination to walk off a mission where you had these homes, you had structure, you had, you know what I mean? to just to walk off and go settle on the banks of the bar and live the way that they wanted to live, you know? And when I think about voices, I think about, I think about that. I think that's quite powerful. Yeah, it's yeah. extremely powerful and um, leads me really nicely into this next part about how have you guys built your voices to be unapologetically heard? And if you want to talk about how much struggle and trauma you've had to go through, if you want to go into that, then off you go too. Um, thank you <laughs> for reminding me. Um, I, don't, I mean, I work for myself now. Um, you know, my colleagues are my two Kelpies. Um, they don't really disagree with me and we don't, you know, 
We don't have arguments in our workplace, which is our lounge room. Um, <laughs> but um, I actually struggle to um, remember a time... So I've been running my, my own business for 12 months and I have to say that the last 12 months has completely wiped out the years, the 13 years of trauma. Um, I wouldn't describe it as complete trauma, but the 13 years of um, traumatic experiences that I had in sitting in some meetings with non-Aboriginal people in the public sector. And um, I guess the way that I would describe my voice now is that I'm completely unshakable in my beliefs, in my ethics and my values and how it is that I choose to turn up in this world and what I'll say and how I say things. I certainly know that I'm not for everyone and everyone knows they're not for me. Um, or I know that, you know, and that's vice versa. And I am unapologetic about that because I don't think we all have to be friends in this world. I don't think we all have to share the same opinion. We all have different life experiences and education and opportunities. Um, and I think now I'm just really, um, I'm quite staunch in that. You know, I, you know, I wonder if that comes with age, but I also wonder if it comes with opportunity to truly learn about who you are and where you come from and where it is that you're going in life. Um, there has been times in the last 12 months where, um, I mean, I started my business with $76. I just quit in a blaze of glory. I was like, that's it, I'm out. I didn't say that's it, I used another word. Um, <laughs> but I walked out and I had, you know, I paid my electricity bill. I had nothing less left and I just thought, I'm going to go for it. And, you know, I've just celebrated a year in business. And there are times as a startup where I should have accepted, you know, where, there were, you know, two really big contracts in front of me with government agencies where I was just like, it's not for me. Um, and that, you know, those would... At that time, it was the difference between paying your electricity bill and, you know, not eating tuna and, you know, rice, like back at uni days. Um, but <laughs> quinoa, everyone's got... They've got that flash quinoa now. <laughs> it's no, like, $1.59 white rice. It's quinoa. Um, but, yeah, I guess... Um, I've completely locked that way of, you know, I've forgotten about those times of oppression because I haven't been oppressed in a really long time and I can't see myself being oppressed um, anytime soon and I guess that's what makes me feel really unshakable in my beliefs and um, I've had to be really bold to get to that point um, but I'll tell you what, I feel so much healthier and happier because of that because you've gone and seeked your own self-determination. I said uh, there was something you brought up in there as well um, about uh, the system that you're working under as well and the, those moments of like trauma we went through where you would have been tone policed as well. So our voices being tone policed and kind of, um, you know, moulded to be more palatable for white audiences. And so to have to go through that. Like, and I don't think a lot of people understand how traumatic that can be when you are tone policed, yeah. when you're told how to kind of react in a certain way or what to say, what to, say to be more um, appealing to the group that you're speaking to, even though you're talking and, you know, working in things that are already quite impactful enough because yeah. you're not representing just yourself, you're representing a whole community of people. And so to be then told, well, can you just like, say it in this way? Yeah. It can be, that can be enough for you to be, like, the 13 years of it, I can imagine. I mean, I... There's three top... Um, three experiences that stand out for me, but um, one of them is that when I was going, to, um, going into this meeting and we were going to be talking about um, 
domestic and family violence. And my sister girl up the back there, Ashley Donahue, she will tell you that um, identifying and responding to domestic and family violence in any community is complex, but it's particularly complex in our communities. And um, there are a lot of government agencies in this country that have to lift their game to address violence for women across the board, but particularly for addressing violence against um, women in our communities. So I was going into this meeting one day and, um, you know, when you, you have a meeting about a meeting and, you know, you know what I mean, you know, everyone's got to have a meeting before you go to the meeting and then you have a press meeting and, you know, just, you could tell me this in an email. Um, <laughs> but we went to, we, we were sitting there and we were preparing, right, and um, my background is in child protection and I've got a lot of a particular experience around um, sexual assault with, um, with children and young people and... So I thought I had a lot of value to add to this. And we're sitting in this meeting and um, this, the director at the time, we, you know, I wrote the briefing documents because, you know, she couldn't write it herself. But, um, <laughs> but we wrote it and we sit in this meeting. And she said to me, um, I'm talking to her about this and she's taking notes so she can go in there and look deadly. But she puts her hand on my hand and she says, <laughs> now when we go into this meeting, you're not to speak. Yeah, <laughs> that's what my, my spirit in here was saying. Um, but I remember that, and I was, and I was, I was gobsmacked. And I was thinking, my nan come to me, and then she's like, um, rise above it. I didn't. Um, <laughs> then we went into this meeting. She got a, she got a, you know, she got a curly. And then she looked at me, and I just picked up my water and drank. And it just, it reminded me of, I quit three days later because I was like, no, I'm not doing that. Um, and I went to another job and similar things happened. But, um, but yeah, that, that really surprised me because we were specifically speaking about Aboriginal women. I'm an Aboriginal woman. We were specifically speaking about Aboriginal women from far west New South Wales. I'm an Aboriginal woman from far west New South Wales. My manager at the time was um, a white woman living a vegan living in Newtown, um, who actually thought that um, Broken Hill was up near Moree, and I'm like, anyway, so that was, there was just, it was, yeah, it was interesting, so yeah, that, that sticks out in my mind of, you know, when you're, I don't know what was going on there, but yeah, it just, you know, when people try to tell you what your opinion is, but they overtly just say, shut up, yes. you're not to speak at this point. You're not allowed to talk like this. It's you know, and this this was literally in 2016, 2016, 2015. You know. Yeah, my like first experience of um, being tone police was when I left uni, and it was like 2016 as well. And it was um, the whole, um, all they were saying to um, a person in my um, that I was working with who was not Aboriginal. Um, oh, gee, when you speak, it's like really confident and passionate and you know I love hearing you when you talk but when Sarah talks it's just there's just this like ugly aggression that comes with it so I always got to arc up and we're talking about the exact same things and that was the first time I learned about term policing and it can it massively it's something that sticks with us for a long time like we internalize it over a long time and it never really leaves us those events and so what about you what have, have you had similar experiences of those kinds of tone policing events with people yes <laughs> I work in the corporate space, so it happens all the time. Um, but it happened quite recently when I sat on a panel, and the panel was about uh, Indigenous people um, 
in regards to reconciliation and the I mean what in what ways could reconciliation Australia tackle employment within the corporate space and you know um, how we could help corporates um, get there close the gap I guess we talk about this gap and um, and I gave my opinion and when I give my opinion on Indigenous uh, issues or matters, it's coming from a lived experience and it's coming from a personal experience. So, anyways, the week later, I was, um, I was pulled into a meeting and I was told that I have to be careful when I talk about these things because I'm re representing more than just myself. And I said, hold up, hold up. I was introduced as a Wailwin Nyimba, Barkindji and Yuwalara woman from Brewarana, and I was asked about Indigenous matters. And I gave my opinion on that. And when I give my opinion on that, I'm talking about myself and I'm talking about my family, I'm talking about my community. Um, and in this meeting, I'm saying exactly this and a bit more and I'm told by another Indigenous person that, well, she did that, she went, <laughs> why, are you, why are you getting angry? Why are you getting angry? I said, I'm not getting angry. I'm just explaining to you my viewpoint. But still, I come off apparently as very angry. And not only did I feel disempowered, but I felt like I certainly was not being heard. So why do we have panels? Why are we asked for our opinion if it simply does not matter? If it's going to be, there's a blanket going to be put across it anyways, or if it's going to be toned down, or if it's going to be misconstrued. I mean, are they asking because they want to actually hear about it? Or are they asking because it's just nice to have us at the table? Yeah. I know. So how have you had to build your voice so that you are unapologetically heard? Um, well, I'm, I'm still quite relatively young and I'm still navigating my, my way through the corporate space and, and, you know, trying to find my way as a young Indigenous person. Um, I, I, I can't give you an answer to that, Sarah, because I'm still trying to figure that out, you know? But I guess I, I did start a, a non-profit organisation called We Pledge and, and that's around giving voice to, you know, the young girls back home in my community of Brewarana. Um, so I guess you can say that's, that's a part of expressing and finding my, my voice. So what led you to create We Pledge? And can you give us a little bit of a brief overview of what We Pledge does for people that don't know? Okay, well, Dixie would know. Um, Brewarren is quite a segregated community. When we went to school in Bree, uh, well, Dixie left us for Broken Hill. Um, KFC. <laughs> KFC McDonald's. Um, the, the school we went to is all Indigenous, right? We don't go to school with white people. White people are sent across to the Catholic school from kindergarten to year six and then off to boarding school for high school. So we, 
don't have any interaction with non-Indigenous people um, unless they're the shopkeeper, unless they're the doctor, uh, unless they're the nurses, uh, the swimming... Nah, because I didn't do swimming club. Because I was a champion. Um, <laughs> 50 metre butterfly. I beat all the little white kids. <laughs> we used to go watch them, but that's about it. Um, but yeah, no, I never had any interaction with, with non-Indigenous people until I come to Sydney. Um, and uh, basically, so in Warrenate, because of that reason, there's a lack of uh, employment opportunities, right? If the, the employment opportunities are you clean at the hospital, you clean the school, you work at the local supermarket, which isn't even a supermarket, it's more like a convenience store. Um, literally the size of a convenience store down here is our supermarket. Um, what else is our... You could... The council, but then, you know, you're mowing lawns, um, you're working on the roads. Um, so those are the employment, um, you know, things, aspirations to be on. Those are the employment aspirations for our children out there. And I got lucky. I got very, very, like, very, very lucky um, uh, when my twin and I came to, to UTS. And um, basically I started We Pledge because I think our kids deserve more and they deserve better and they deserve to see other... Um, amazing Aboriginal people out there doing awesome stuff. Um, so I uh, match each student with an Indigenous mentor and each Indigenous mentor are doing incredible things within their field. So you would know the likes of Cody Galligan, she's at Combank, she studied um, Bachelor of Arts. Uh, Remy Crick, they're both in the audience by the way. Remy Crick, she's, um, she studied architecture, also got a Master's of Architecture and she's also at Combank. Just incredible people doing incredible things and, and those are the type of role models that I want our kids to see and, and aspire to be and, and that's why I started We Pledge. It says a lot as well because um, a lot of people, we get this common stereotype on us that we're given, we're given free shit all the time. That's what we're told all the time. Um, everything that we've got, we should be grateful for and we're kind of all kind of feeding for scraps sometimes as well. We're fighting to just have a voice and we're also kind of fighting for scraps and amongst each other. And it's really infuriating when we hear these things of we're giving free stuff because all the stuff that we create, it's like we, we've created them. Our old people have created them and we're still creating them now. No one's given us this. It's us recognising a gap. Well, I shouldn't say gap, but us recognising something that's missing, something that needs to be filled in there so there's more opportunity and us taking the initiative to go and do it, not waiting for anyone else. And you did the same thing with Source Nation. I was waiting for you to cue me. <laughs> um, I think I just really started um, my business because I wanted choice. Um, and I got really frustrated in terms of being boxed into what my opinion should be, how I should, you know, go to work and, you know, that you're going to put a bra on to go to work. And sometimes I didn't want to... I don't wear a bra to work. <laughs> um, not outside of the house. Um, but I, I started my business because I wanted choice and I also wanted to challenge people and I wanted to have 
conversations with government agencies like health, like facts, like police, like big corporates and say, are you actually doing enough for Aboriginal people? And um, a lot of my inspiration, you know, mo all of my inspiration comes from home. And, um, you know, Barbie mentioned what, you know, some of the, the professions are that our people have. And some people are really happy in those jobs, you know, and, and they love them and I'm, I'm so proud of people. I just wanted my people to know that they could have choice. Um, and um, I wanted, you know, the. I know this is the last question that we get to um, down the back around, you know, when did you realise your, um, your race was powerful? Um, <laughs> sorry, sis. Um, but I remembered when, when I was in year 10, you know, when, you, when you, um, you get the year 11 and 12 paper to say what you're going to choose for the rest of your life, you know, like well, you're going to do biology, you're going to do chemistry or whatever, you're going to learn how to make some cakes and home make, I don't know. Um, but my teacher, she did the girl next to me she skipped me and she went to the boy next to me and I was like, oh, miss, you forgot me. And she's like, oh, are you going to year 11 and 12? And I was like, wow. So I stood up um, and I looked her in the eye and I said, this is who I am, this is where I'm from and one day you're going to tell people that I was your student. And I took the piece of paper out of her hand. And the day that I quit, um, you know, I was thinking about it for about a good week and a half and um, finally when I handed that in, I was thinking about my teacher at that point because I was like, the next... She can egg me on, but what's really going to inspire me to lead is that we're no longer going to accept that this is the status quo of how it is that we do business and the way that we turn up in the world for Aboriginal people. This is not good enough anymore. And at times I'm quite critical of um, who's got a voice at the table and what it is that they say and why it is that they say it. That's just where I'm going to leave that. I'm not going to go into that yarn because it's, you know, you never know who's in the room and who they connected to. <laughs> um, but I just think that there's a better way that we can do business. And when I say business, I mean the way that we just turn up for Aboriginal people in this country and the way that we celebrate the cleaners in our hospitals or the way that we celebrate the council workers or the same way that we celebrate the doctors in our country, the Aboriginal doctors, the same way that we celebrate the Aboriginal pilots. I think that there is, there's always, there's a class system in every single part of this world and I just wanted people, I started a business because I want people to know how bloody brilliant black people are in this country and how lucky non-Aboriginal people are to have us a part of this space and how lucky you are to be here with us. That's economic empowerment right there. What you do is economic empowerment. Yeah. And that's what we need. I haven't paid myself for two months, but... <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if that's economic empowerment. <laughs> I think it is. I think it's definitely economic empowerment when you're taking um, a leap of faith on your own to create something for other people and not giving to yourself in the meantime because you know that there's something more bigger at the end of the road. You've got to create something sustainable. And that's what all black fellas are doing in business. We're creating sustainable things. It's not about an immediate compensation. It's about something that's going to grow and create, always constantly creating those foundations. That's what our old people did before us as well. It's what we're still doing today. And before Truth we... be told, some of us. So <laughs> Truth be told, some of us are doing it for our mob. We'll get into some that. Some of us are doing it we'll for... We'll get into that in a minute. Get a lot of nodding heads there. Yeah. Um, before I wrap up the voice um, 
section, I just want to ask you before that finishes, what process do you kind of go through? Because for me, when I was growing up, I didn't understand how to handle um, the challenges and conflicts that I had with people that were trying to manipulate my voice, people that were trying to take my narrative and try and cast it off as something else because of what I was saying they didn't agree with. And I didn't understand a process of how to go through it. I've had to kind of learn how my own way through it. And I think it's important for because we're recording this for young people that listen. Do you have a process or do you have advice of a process that you could go through to ensure your voice isn't manipulated? I don't know about a process. Um, or a practice. Even if it's I self-care. Just, I just think, like I said before, I just feel unshakable. You know, like... Sometimes p things are said that, you know, can warrant, you know, like a mother of dragons kind of response, you know, like you channel that Khaleesi. And, um, <laughs> but I don't really engage in that space. Like, I, I literally just sit in... I ch probably channel the, the calmness that I feel when, yeah, you know, things wind me up, yeah, but when I'm, when I'm faced in a situation where someone... where my integrity and my voice may be compromised to serve somebody else and their needs, I, I channel the calmness that I have of sitting by um, the Barwon River. And there's a weir um, in that little town where we come from. We've the oldest man-made fish traps in the entire world and they're beautiful and the water just runs over them and it's continuous. Actually, it wasn't recently. It was completely dried up because greedy people took all the water and the drought. Um, but mainly greedy people. Um, but for me, the advice that I would give to a young person is to sit in your integrity, even though it feels incredibly uncomfortable and you feel nervous and you feel like you want to feel silence, you know, because someone else may have a story that, you know, someone else has a story about you. My encouragement to you is to know that someone else's story is not your truth um, and to sit in the integrity of your truth. What about you, sis? Um, I, would, um, I would like to point out that there are different ways of, of having a voice. Mm -hmm. And there are certainly different ways of having a, vo a voice if you are an Indigenous person. I mean, we always put limitations on blackfellas when it, when it comes to who's the most woke or who's not woke or, you know, and, and different ways of doing so. And, and I think you can be woke in, in various ways, right? You could, you could, like Dixie said, be the cleaner and, and, and still be contributing to the cause. You could, you could be an architect, right, or a banker and still be contributing to the cause. Um, you could be an artist, right? You could, you could um, be on radio and you could be contributing to the cause. I think what's important is that we don't box ourselves in as Indigenous people and, and you know, we talk about self-determination and empowerment, but it's also making sure that our young people are aware that they can go out and do anything that they, they can. If it's not, you know, detrimental to our people, um, they can go out and do whatever they can um, and it's, it's still dubbed um, great for our people, you know? You still have a voice regardless um, there's no right or wrong. You can be multidimensional, you know, and that's okay. 
Well, that leads into this next section, which we were all discussing prior to this, is something that's tricky for us to wrap our heads around because of the one simple fact that when... I don't even think it's just on this. I think it's on most things. We're expected to be experts on everything. And so can you guys recall a time when it comes to... It might not be around treaty, but it might just be something just in general where you're expected to be an expert or a representative for all of us and it's unfair. It puts you in an unfair scenario. Uh, treaty. <laughs> I don't know much about treaty, to be honest. Um, I did a Bachelor of Business with majors in accounting and law, but it was commerce law. Um, and I... I mean, growing up in Bree is really not something we discuss, you know. We don't have really in-depth conversations around treaty. Um, but I think that expectation on Aboriginal people to know everything when it comes to, to um, different things that are happening in the Indigenous space um, is also very detrimental to our young people, right? I think... Um, I mean, I got asked a few times, um, what do I think about certain things? And I'm like, oh, hold up, what, did that happen? Oh, what, you didn't know that happened? Aren't you Indigenous? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. well, you know, I work. I sit on the boards of various other organisations. I, I now run my own organisation. Um, you know, I, I don't have time to be, uh, you know, up to date with, with everything that's happening all Indigenous, even though I would love to be. Um, and, yeah, I just, I just, I think that, um, I mean, there are people who, who dedicate their lives to, to, you know, things like treaty and, and government and policies. And, you know, whilst I, I do like to have my say sometimes, um, you know, I, I oftentimes I like to leave it to the experts. But in saying that too, it comes back to voice. Some, some people aren't really um, advocating for us in the way that they should be. Um, and, that you know, some people are drowning out other blackfellas too. So then that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. What about you, sis? Um, yeah, the same about the... The treaty, like, no, you know, when, when I asked for the questions, I was like, oh, gosh, no one's ever asked me my opinion about the treaty before. It's just not a conversation that I engage in. And I guess there is that expectation that you know that, you know, like, I, today I literally Googled hashtag versus constitutional recognition because I was like, oh, I better research that because no one has ever had a conversation with me. And I, I think that's um, probably an issue in itself is that if this is such a... Um, massive conversation and that it just hasn't filtered to me um, for whatever reason and um, when I reflect on it I look at that conversation how it's played out and it's probably excluded me to a degree and I haven't bought into it whereas kids and out of home care I'm there you know I'm in that conversation domestic and family violence I'm there um, and I'm not saying that it's not important I certainly truly appreciate and have so much gratitude for the people who are in that in that yarn and mm. advocating for change in this country around tr treaty and also the people that advocate for constitutional um, recognition. It just isn't something that I, um, I have a very strong opinion on and there you know, are probably people that 
like, you know, I'm mad that I have that point of view, but I guess it, it is what it is. Like, it's just not a a hot topic in, you know, on my day, in my day-to-day life, like the hot topics in, in my life, um, having yarns about permanency planning for kids in out-of-home care and adoption, hot topics and making sure that some people have money to pay their electricity bills, that kids aren't going to school with holes in their shoes in, you know, Western Sydney and getting frostbite on their little toe because it's cold, you know, like that's, that's where my priority is and um, I... My commitment to change in this country is one-on-one with people. Um, rather, I don't need a big, large platform to have these conversations because if I can change one black man or black woman or child's life, then I'm a happy person. No, you go, you go. Um, on, on, that, on that topic, um, I think it's difficult for a suppressed group of people to have a sense of awareness and I think that's what we're finding, well, yeah, we're struggling today in regards to that sense of awareness. So, sense of awareness of self, identity, sense of, you know, um, where, we, where we're at politically, um, socially, as, as a group of people, and awareness around where it is that we, we want to go or where it is that we should go. We haven't quite figured that out as a, as a group of people yet. And... I mean, I think that's where the Recognise campaign um, lacked a bit of um, nudge is that, one, a lot of us, a lot of Aboriginal... Well, we were so focused on trying to prove to the rest of Australia why we should be recognised, um, we forgot about educating our own people on why we should be recognised and why it's important. And not only that, but we also... You know, there was, there was never a no recognise campaign that was funded just as much as the the Yes Recognise campaign. And, you know, the whole educational aspect was just thrown out the window and and I'd hate to see that happen again. I think um, one of the things that we have to really focus on is who are we as a group of people? We know who we are as in, you know, in our different communities, but who are we as a group of people and what does that look like, you know, in order to actually move forward? I think that's a conversation that we, we have to start you know, I think that we is not just us as Aboriginal people. I mean, who is it that we as a collective of white people, of, um, you know, of all the different diversities in this country, where do we land in terms of, you know, the understanding the truth, that understanding what has happened to our people in this country and where it is, how is that we move forward as a big collective? Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but in regards to our own people, there's a lot of people who don't think that treaty is the right way forward, right? Um, yeah. Well, that's the um, other point as well, is that the rest of um, this country that are not Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, they'll go and look to people that have been elected by not necessarily us to be voices for us. And that's another problem is that we have people that are representing us and being gatekeepers of this conversation and they're actually serving their own self-interest. And then the rest of us here, that's why we end up at this point where we're like, treaty what? Like, I've never been asked that question before. And the people that have been asked these questions are probably people that shouldn't necessarily be representing us. And then you have the rest of... And then we end up having these conversations on the ground 
and someone's like, oh, well, if we disagree with it, then you'll have someone else say, oh, but this other Aboriginal person that's really high up and is doing a lot of work and is really famous and well-known, they say this, so you're wrong. And then that puts a dilemma on us as well. And it can be that, have you guys found yourself in positions like that where you've had someone say, oh, but this other black fellow says this? No? Really? I have. <laughs> Plenty of times. And myself in a situation where, you know, Ray said to me, because Tom told me this and this is the way it's going to be. Um, yeah, I've, I've never been in that situation. I think, and I think maybe because the way that I turn up in conversations is that people know that I speak for myself um, and from my experience as a Barkindji woman in this country and wherever it is that I've been and, you know, whatever it might be. But I've, I've, I have to say, I, you know, I've never been in that situation where I've been like, well, someone else said this, so you must surely have the same opinion. Yeah, it's not necessarily been like you should have the same opinion. It's more like using it against me to kind of um, negate what I've said, to say that what I've said isn't correct because, well, I know this other person that says this, so you surely mustn't be on the right track then. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Um, and it comes back to that whole, um, you know, if certain people, certain blackfella thinks this, you know, thinks um, something is right, then other black people may, and, and those black people may disagree, like other black people may disagree. Um, it, it depends who's, how, how, how do I word this? Um, treaty, for example. Or, or, you know, the um, Uluru Statement of, my, of the Heart. There's a lot of people who are for the Uluru, Uluru Statement of the Heart and then there are some black people who are disagree. But you wouldn't hear about the ones who disagree, right? Probably like, who disagrees? You, you won't hear about it because they don't have a platform to voice their opinion and that's the issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think we have to have... If we, if we want to go forward as a group of people, I mean... And I, it comes back to that, having that conversation amongst our, our own people, our own Indigenous people, around where it is that we're at, understanding where we're at, so then we could actually move forward together. And we have not yet come together as one to move forward together, right? Because people who disagree are continuously being drowned out. I think that's a really great way to end the treaty stuff. I don't think we really need to delve much further into that because I really want to move on to truth because I think truth is something that is never really divulged or um, discussed enough. And I wanted to start off with how our truths are censored. Have you guys ever had your truth as a First Nations woman censored? And how do you handle it when it occurs? Um, it depends on the situation. Uh, depends on how I observe someone else turning up in this conversation and whether or not their mouths are open and their ears are closed. Um, there have been, like I said before, there are, you know, I'm not for, I know that I'm not for everyone and everyone's certainly not for me. Um, but it really depends on the situation and I, I've never found my, I, I think I'm, I, I think I'm really privileged in the sense that the people that I've surrounded myself and, you know, um, there's only been few and far between um, 
you know, spaces that I've engaged in where people have tried to censor me. Um, but maybe that's because, you know, I, I've just been completely blinded to that. I've just been so loud and so boisterous and so determined in how it is that I turn up in that conversation. I mean, what that, that story about, um, you know, the woman who, you know, used to manage a team um, that I worked with around the DV, I did have a very robust conversation with her and that never, ever happened again. Um, so it's, I think the way that I, that there's only been a few a few times where that's happened and then I've just handled it. Like I've just had conversations and it depended on what level of blackness I needed to bring into that conversation. You know, how black am I going to have to get <laughs> to handle this? Um, it, it varies and I guess the advice that I would give to anyone if there is, if they are feeling that they are, you know, censored or being oppressed is to um, give yourself a minute, catch your breath, um, because it's very overwhelming when you feel like you're being under attacked or, you know, your identity is being attacked and your integrity is being questioned and you're being asked to be something that you're not, um, is to give yourself a minute, channel as much energy as that you can that you can and know the goal that you want in that conversation, know what the outcome it is that you yeah. want because you could either walk away from that conversation feeling like rubbish or you could walk away from that conversation being really empowered knowing that at that point where you really needed to turn up for yourself that you were able to do that. Yeah. What about you, sis? I can't think of a time where I've been censored be that Brewarina blood that just runs through us. Oh, because we just say it how it is, wherever, yeah. like whenever. Um, no, I can't. I can't tell you when there's a time that that I've been censored. I mean, I've been misconstrued before, misinterpreted, but there hasn't been a time where I've been censored. I think this is a. But I also think um, that this actually might be a generational thing. Because I bet you there's been multiple times where my grandmother and, you know, where our mums were censored and they were told to, you know, not say anything, to sit, at, you know, to stand in the corner, you know, and not be a part of, the, you know, a conversation. But I wonder if it's because of the, the strength and the resilience and the fierceness that our grandmothers and our grandfathers and every, what they've channelled for the last, you know, 200 years, I, you know, it's probably because of them yeah. that we don't accept censorship well, any longer. I feel like we're at a very different, like the time that we're in right now, I was talking about this with my, with my mum because mum was saying to me, we came from a time of survival. We came from a time where we had to really be careful about things that happened because it could affect, you know, it could affect whether or not our water was getting turned off when we were on the mission. It could affect so many things. It could affect, like, our children being taken. So many things, how we act, how we behave, what, how, what kind of blackness we brought, you know? And we're at a time... So they come from a time of survival. We're in a time now where it's more operational. Although I feel like a lot of us young people now are thinking in terms of dismantling the systems that we're under. So we might find that a lot of us young people, like Barbie, where we can... Which is quite fortunate to be able to come to that answer and say I have not felt properly censored before and that would also speak to the fact that a lot of us now are learning how to create safe spaces for ourselves so that that doesn't happen because I think we've um, gone through enough kind of trauma and listening to our old people and what they've gone through to learn how to kind of design our lives now so we don't have to be attacked yeah 
and we're going to wrap up soon, but I just want to come to this question. We've got two left, and this last one is would be, what would be your advice for young mob listening that are trying to understand their truth and stand strong within it? Um, I would have to say that first, have a sense of self. Find out who you are, where you come from, um, and, and find that sense of belonging. And, uh, because once you have that foundation, anything is possible, you know? Um, and the, the fact that, you know, you have, you have thousands of years of resilience running through your bloodline. You have thousands of years of, of powerful and strong ancestors running through your bloodline. And, and that alone uh, gives you strength. Um, it gives you integrity. And it gives you... It <laughs> this is my friend Cody, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that alone gives you strength. Yeah. I got a list. <laughs> I actually, um, I got a little bit teary when I was sitting there. I don't know whether it was the fact that I was like two coffees deep today in this, but, you know, and all the energy and, you know, it was just running through me. Don't have two coffees in three hours. It's not good. Um, but I wrote, be unshakable in your beliefs and your identity. Muster as much courage as you can when you feel like you're under threat. Know your feelings are valid. Know the stories that other people, others have about you is not your truth. Know every battle in this world is not yours to fight. Conserve your energy and do the things that inspire you and not harm your spirit or you. And surround yourself with good people and always know where your North Star is. That's lovely. Put that on a hallmark card. Hey. <laughs> So we asked this last question to every Race Matters guest, um, kind of like creating a little archive with, this, with all the answers that we get. It makes us very excited. And that is, when did you realise your race made you powerful? I dropped the gun now. It could have been a great finish, eh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, probably I realised how powerful I was in, in my identity as a Bikinji woman every time someone has underestimated me and that their underestimation either comes from fear and the threat of who I am and what I'm capable of. Um, so a story is that one day I was trying to get into my office and... Um, lovely, big, tall, white man in a big flash suit comes along and says, um, how come you're not in a uniform? And I said, what do you mean? I was like, I'm trying to get into my office, you know, it's like meeting after meeting. And, and I said, what do you mean? And he said, how come... Um, and I just want to say before I say this that I truly appreciate these people that sit in these professions because they create the safest and healthiest spaces for us. Um, but he did say, how come you're not wearing a uniform like the rest of the cleaners? And I, um, 
And I stood there and I thought, and it, what the... F um, <laughs> I thought, like, what, what are you... What? <laughs> what? And then a couple of days later, you know, I worked in a space where there's a lot of people, 5,000 people working in this, in this workspace. And then five days later, I happened to be sitting in the executive office, um, the boardroom. And who sits down across from me? And I said, nice to meet you. I'm the director of Aboriginal Health. And, um, and he was gobsmacked because he actually believed um, that I said to him, what, first of all, if it wasn't for um, cleaners and domestic staff in this hospital, you would never, that's where the, there you go, see, that's where it happened. You wouldn't be able to do your job. You wouldn't be able to be earning the $450,000 that you earn every single year if it wasn't for these people making sure that the spaces where you could go and do surgery and you could deliver good quality clinical care, you wouldn't be able to do that for them if they weren't here. So that's when I realised, the day that I was opening that, that this man thought that I was only, only this, um, it realised that I could be, that he was threatened and that he had no idea what capability Aboriginal people had. It wasn't even, it was never about me. He didn't even know my name, it was never ever about me. It was about what his perception was of the capability of the people, the First Nations people in this country. I had a similar experience. Um, had a group of Indigenous uh, youth come through uh, for a tour of our campus once and um, a friend of mine who was non-Indigenous was helping me out. And one of the ladies who were chaperoning the youth, she was Indigenous, um, she asked me when my non-Indigenous person walked away, she, she asked me, is she your manager? No, sorry. Briefage, is she your supervisor, she asked. I was like, no, 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 she's, she's, she's not my supervisor. Um, she's, actually a, she's just actually a colleague of mine. At the time, actually, she was actually below me. She's on par with me now, but she was actually below me um, at the time. But yeah, she asked me, is she your, your supervisor? Um, and that, that, that hit home to me, that was really, really powerful at the time because here I am bringing a group of Indigenous youth through, through our campus to show, you know, what kind of opportunities there are for our people. And, and you have another Indigenous woman ask me if the white person in the room is my supervisor. Um, and, um, yeah, I guess, I guess it was very, very... Um, it reminded me of why, why I do what I do in the corporate space and why I strive to be, um, to, to be the best within that space and, and, and why it's important for our people to, to go in and, and break glass ceilings and, and show other, um, you know, other Aboriginal people that, that you can come through and, and be manager of corporate governance. Um, and, and you can be a director and you can be CEO. Um, but yeah, my, um, back to your question, um, what made me powerful was, um, I was home around April last year, my uncle had passed away. And um, one, of the, one of the young guys come up to me and he said, and he was really excited, he was, because there was this program, there was this employment working for the Dole program in Brewarren at the time, only, 
because there's a lack of employment, um, you learn numeracy and literacy skills and you get paid, right? You get the doll. And so you had a lot of our um, aunties and uncles going to, um, to this numeracy and um, literacy courses, literacy for life, that's it. Um, and um, they were learning to read and write for the first time, which was incredible. And you had this one, one young guy who was about 19. He was employed by Literacy for Life. They employed him to um, uh, present some of the courses and um, deliver some of the courses. And he'd come up to me and he was really excited because I'm that, I'm that you know, like Dixie, one of the Aboriginal people who made it out in quotation marks. And, and when they, you know, you, you hear my name back home, you, you hear about the company I work for and, and the fact that I went away to uni to get a degree and, and so on. So this 19-year-old, and, and I'm not saying that's the be-all and end-all, our people are capable of anything and are allowed to do anything, but he come up to me and he, he said, yeah, I've got, I got this job. I've got a job and it's for literacy for life and this is what I do and it's amazing and I'm happy and, and, and you know, it's, it's incredible. And I said, you know, I'm so proud of you, like that's awesome and, and you should have seen the life in him, the life in him, right? Um, and I, I went back home for, for Christmas and I saw him, I saw him around and, and he, didn't, he didn't run up to me this time, right? And usually he does, he runs up and gives me a big cuddle. Um, and he ran up and I walked over to him and I said, hey, how are you? And I gave him a hug and everything and he said, yeah, I'm good. And he, and he looked sad, like the life was just drained out of him, right? He, um, he, he had lost his job about a couple of weeks prior and that's because the government cut funding to Literacy for Life, right? These are the, the impacts that... Um, that comes with short-term investments in our people, whether it be programs, whether it be other initiatives. But these are the consequences that we don't see, um, but it's real. And I saw him and he was telling me and he had tears in his eyes. And um, about, about a couple of weeks later, I found out he tried to commit suicide. Yeah? And um, I know that I know that, that was directly related to the fact that he had lost his job. Because he's lost his sense of purpose, he was disempowered, and um, I've, I've seen firsthand what it does to people, what it does to families, what it does to communities. And and um, it's, 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 I've decided it's got to change. Um, so with the youth in um, the We Pledge program that I founded, um, each of them have work experience at the Abriwara and the Shire um, that they'll be going through. They'll be going through, they'll be completing a traineeship before they finish high school. Um, and um, we're working on getting them full-time employment um, upon high school graduation. And, and I think that's my, and I've never had to think about that before, but I, th I would believe that's my moment of um, finding power in, in who I am.
and what I do and what I stand for, um, it would be that moment. Because the way he come running up to me just to tell me about his job, oh, I will I'll never forget that, you know? Yeah, that's, that's, that would be my moment. Well, I think that's one amazing way to wrap up this very important yarn that we've just had. And I think some of the amazing things that you both brought out in this is that um, the limitless, that the limitless opportunities and capabilities that we all have, and you've all kind of really instilled in me. Some like I don't know. I feel like I'm really ready to go and accomplish a lot of things now, just from listening to. Both of you really speak your truth, and I really want to thank both of you for coming up on stage because it's really hard to come and do this. It's really hard to come and for you know to be asked to come up and share these kinds of stories and share these kinds of um, thoughts and experiences and the knowledges that you have as well. And so to come up and do that, like it's something that's going to be living on forever now because we have things like audio recordings now where. We can have our young. We can push this out to young mob to be able to listen to it everywhere. And it's a hard thing to do to come up on this stage and to share like these two women have come up on here to this stage right now to share with all of us. And it's really, really, um, I really feel privileged right now to have listened to both of you because we covered some topics that <laughs> you know we don't ever get to be asked these kinds of questions do we especially things like when the, like, to have to think back onto a moment like that in your life or when you realize you felt powerful like that's something you got to dig deep for and we don't ever get the opportunity to be able to do that and to do it for a really big purpose because we don't just do this for ourselves you know we do it for all of our communities we do it for all of the young people that are going to come up next and we do it for our ancestors you know, and the bloodlines of 80,000 years that live within us. And I really want to, I really feel very thankful for both of you to come up and share that with me today. So thank you guys. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.